everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, you're going to hear from Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, along with several staff and interns from Upper House, an initiative on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. This year's Upper House interns read Nick's book, Substance, along with the Upper House staff, and we thought it would be cool to have them come on the podcast to talk with the author himself about questions that they had. The interns' names are Jack, Lindsay, Zach, and Ariel, and they're all students at UW-Madison. If you find that you have a question after listening to this episode, or maybe you had your own questions after reading Substance, feel free to send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can also purchase Substance on Amazon, linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening. All right, hey, everybody. Hi. So, um... Uh, first, either thank you for the, your interest in reading the book I wrote or submitting to being forced to do so. Um, I I know I already know Lindsay and Becca and Jean and Zach and John, you, you guys look like like people I've met. In fact, Ariel looks kind of familiar too, but... You dunked me underwater. Yeah, you looked, you looked wetter then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Zach, you go to High Point? Yes. Okay. And John? Jack, sorry, you're good. Jack, oh, uh, sorry. My phone was all weird. Um, yeah, I go to High Point as well. Okay, cool. And can you get quick do the, like, what you guys are interning for? I can go first. Um, I am the events intern. Okay. <coughs> and Ariel? I am the hospitality intern. Okay, so I thought you your host. Lindsay, are you business? Uh, I do administration. Okay. And Jack? I do communications. Okay, great. And just for those who may listen to this in the future, um, what is Upper House that you are all either working for or interning for? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer sometimes. Um, but Upper House is an initiative of the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation on UW-Madison's campus. And we aim to invite people into whole life discipleship through multi-experiential events. And so for me, it's been helpful to look at like three things that Upper House does. We host open study hours for students throughout the week. Um, the night we have different campus ministries hosting their weekly meetings. And then Upper House has its own events throughout the week where Christian speakers come in uh, and talk. Okay, sweet. All right, so who's who's doing the question throwdowning? Is that Becca or who? who's the? I'm kind of like the, the question coordinator, right. if you will. Right. So I have the first question for you. Sweet. So, uh, first question. So, uh, how do you forgive yourself and let yourself believe there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus uh, without being laissez-faire towards sin? I actually wrote this question because um, I said that when I sin, I want to remind myself of the truth that I've been forgiven and that Christ died for me while I was yet a sinner. But it can feel like I have Paul Washer over my shoulder telling me how I'm a lazy Christian and that I'm the problem with the church and that I'm letting myself off the hook too easily. So Ooh, who is Paul Washer? He's like a fiery is, is, preacher. Is he on another YouTube. author you read or something or just do somebody? <laughs> he's a, uh, um, so he has like a couple really popular sermons on YouTube. I think Lindsay, you've seen a couple of them too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's like a more fiery Francis Chan or something. You could say that. I think that's not far off. All right. So, all right. This is going to be a very unsatisfying response probably. <laughs> but 
I think that the book of Romans isn't just a synchronic argument philosophically, meaning that there's that you ju- that it's just like the philosophy of salvation. I think that it's diachronic too. That like it's going through a narrative of how salvation works, kind of in an order, but not just a logical order, but in some ways an experiential order also. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so I, when I say that, I'm not taking away from the logical order of Romans. I think the logical order of Romans is is correct, but I think Paul also organized it so it would be both a logical order and a experiential order. So a realization of sin, a realization of the sameness of sin and a realization of the pervasiveness of sin must all precede a recognition of of the the need for justifying grace, a righteousness apart from law being made known in Christ. Right. And the concept of justification becoming this paramount first step that orders our understanding of our sinfulness and frees us from its impending dread when we begin to understand its, its moral significance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. And then immediately from there, you, you see that he goes from the dread we should feel in chapter three for recognizing that we're all, all alike a people whose throats are open graves straight to, okay, now, now there's no boasting. Like he recognizes how quickly a human soul can go from like, woe is me. I'm dead before God because of my sin to, Oh, I'm forgiven. Oh, that's great. I must be a fantastic person for having like believed this or received this. Right. Yeah. And so chapter four is all about is really, really focused on how this is a work of God based on him giving a promise before there's any kind of human acceptance. And so the preceding nature of God's promise and his initiation takes away our ability to have a boast. That is something that where we state our identity and make a claim about our identity that's rooted in how we've accessed justification, right? So then the question becomes, what is then the human boast? And what happens now that you receive justification by faith alone, which starts a discourse from from chapter five, verse one, through till most people put it at the beginning of chapter nine, Okay. right? And so in the beginning of chapter five, it says, right, we've been justified through faith, right? And we have, we have this grace in which we now stand, right? And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, right? Yeah. And then he says, this hope will not put us to shame. So the concept of having a boast that is being able to claim your legitimate identity and shame, which is the converse idea, which is to lose your personal identity in total personal destruction, right? right. Is rooted in our hope in our participation in the future glory of God. Okay. Which includes tracking backwards in the present moment, the grace of which we now stand and tracking back even further to our moment of justification that we received because of the righteousness given by Christ apart from works. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So part of this is recognizing that the minute you cross the threshold of justification, your boast that is your identity is no longer in your moral performance, but in your personal participation in the future glory of God and your hope in that. Yeah. Which the second half of Roman five says is demonstrated in the actual work of Christ dying for the ungodly, the sinners and those who were his enemies. 
So the, so the God who in the cross dies for the ungodly, the sinners who are his enemies, right? It says that God's love is demonstrated this. So God's, God's love works in chapter three. It works to justify us. But that's not all the cross does. The cross also demonstrates his love for us. So for example, okay. if you think about a wedding, in a wedding, the work of the wedding is that the, the man and the woman become husband and wife. Yeah. But that's not all that happens at a wedding. A wedding is also the demonstration of the love of the man for his wife and the, and the wife for her new husband. That's, that, it's a display of it too. And so the wedding itself encourages people that the love exists and is real and will be maintained and all those kinds of things. And so, and in some ways, the demonstration of love is just as important as the work of the act of the wedding itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. What Romans 5 is saying is what you need to understand is not just the work that's accomplished in the cross, but you have to increasingly understand in your heart what the cross is showing, what it's demonstrating. Charismatics would say you have to experience in your heart the love of God. Which is what, uh, now I, I joke about charismatics because yeah. Gene is on the call, but like, like <laughs> right. Doctrine without pietism is an ugly thing, hmm. right? You, you have to have an, a mind to piety. Like how does the heart in its emotional affections interact with the truths being the truths expressed, right? And it says, right, because it says right before it says that God demonstrates his love. He says, for God's love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then it says, God's love is demonstrated in the cross to the ungodly, right? So the point is this, in salvation, believing in and standing in grace, making our boast in the joy of the hope of the glory of God, right? Yeah. How does that happen? Well, what happens is receiving justification, standing in present grace, and hoping in the future glory of God and making our identity boast in that, recognizing it will never be put to shame. How does that stand? Well, how it stands is pietistically speaking, experientially, God sheds abroad. That is, he throws almost like somebody planting seeds. He gets a handful of it and he just whips it at you, right? Um, it's kind of like if you ever saw the, the show Scrubs and Zach Braff asks, um, like the mean doctor, um, I forget his name right now. Like, what's the proper dose of ibuprofen? He's like, you dump it in your hand and you throw it at their open mouth and whatever sticks is the proper <laughs> dose. Like, it just, like you just, right? Because God throws like an abundant amount of love and whatever like sticks is just what, you know, like that's what we, get, we take, right? And so he's like, the, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad very, um, very generously, right? And then it says, God's demonstration is, right, what I've already said. So the pietistic truth that God through the spirit sheds the love of God, love of God abroad is working in concert with the doctrinal like action in history of Christ dying on the cross for the ungodly. And those two things are supposed to come together. One accessed and apprehended by the, the mind, the other received in the soul and the heart coming together to bring a full human union in which the mind and the heart can be on fire together and experiencing the full truth of the gospel so that you almost kind of forget about how much you suck. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which then carries you into chapter six about dying and rising and how you've died to sin you've risen a new life and then and then you're like what does that mean and then he takes you in this discourse of being under the the law of flesh right and being free and then the beginning of chapter eight how that freedom comes by the spirit the new law of the spirit that comes when you recognize that sanctification is also by the spirit and by grace and by faith because remember the verse you quoted doesn't come at the beginning of chapter four Mm. 
if, if the purpose of Romans 8.1 was to simply say, you're justified by faith, you don't have to feel bad anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It wouldn't be Romans 8.1. It would be Romans 3.32 or 4.1. Where it comes in the discourse is to say, the, re- the reason why 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is so that you can believe that you can receive the spirit. That's the point of that verse. Mm. Because there's no condemnation, even in the fact that you suck now after receiving Jesus, and that you know that you still are in some sense under the weight and strength of the controlling and dominating power of the flesh, you should feel damned a second time, right? And in a certain way, the second half of Romans 7 is a little bit like a rehash of Romans 1, 2, and 3, except for the person who's already accepted Jesus. And then you realize, oh, I could be completely redamned again, <laughs> Because my faith sucks. It hasn't changed me near as much as it should. And the flesh controls me way, like it controls me, like in my, in something inside of me, like in the conscience, what Paul calls the inner person, I love God's law. Like I've recognized Jesus is real. I recognize that God is right. I recognize that's all true. And then I don't do it. I'm like a slave to this other thing, the law of sin and death, the flesh. He uses several names for it in Romans 7. The point is, is that without the spirit as part of the gospel, and without you recognizing the spirit as part of the gospel and you applying the spirit as part of the gospel and embracing what he calls in Romans four the mind of the spirit. Yeah. You will be dominated by the flesh, but how can you believe the spirit will so work with you like that? Well, the same reason you believed you could boast in the hope of the glory of God because of the demonstration of God's love in chapter five. Now with the spirit, even in our, even in the domination of the flesh, why would we believe the spirit would work with such a creature as us? And, and, the, and the answer is, because that's all the spirit is doing is working with sucky creatures like us. That's why he came. Hmm. Right. That's why it says at the end in chat in, in verse 29 in chapter eight, the whole point of all this is to conform those who God has called and justified into the image of his son so hmm. that he could be the firstborn among many sons and daughters. That's the end goal that you would be conformed to look like the many sons and daughters of the firstborn Jesus Christ. And that is a work of the spirit. And that only happens if the spirit actually works in you, which can only happen on the basis of the fact that in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for you who sucks even now. Provided the condition of faith and the condition of faith in chapter eight is different than the condition of faith in chapter three. In chapter eight, the condition of faith is not believe in Jesus, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. The condition of faith in chapter eight is reject the mind of the flesh Hmm. and embrace the mind of the spirit. Right. Right. And that all reprises in practical application in chapter 12, where he says, right, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That whole section in the beginning of chapter 12, that's then laid out very practically in humility, acts of love and acts of brotherhood, all the way to the rejection, rejection of revenge is all just a practical outworking of the mind of the spirit, which we're commanded to receive in the end of chapter seven and the beginning of chapter eight. Does that make sense? But you have to work through it experientially. There's some really good um, articles on this on the Gospel Coalition on like how you understand Romans 7 and 8. And the interpretation from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, is the best and most helpful in relationship to this. What was his name? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay. He was a medical doctor who became a preacher. He was like the Queen's medical doctor. And then he got saved. He was a Welshman. It's it's a very fun story. Okay, cool. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's like a church father you've never known. He's like, he's this great man that nobody knows in my generation. 
but okay. like he um tim have you heard of tim keller yeah so tim keller learned how to preach listening to old tape like cassette tapes of martin lloyd jones really yeah cool all right are we um, good on that one yeah i feel i'll good. try to give briefer answers as we go <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of a dense question to start things off yeah but but how to read romans is hard yeah anyway yeah. sorry okay uh Lindsay, you have the second question yeah so this one's focused more um at looking at like the local church and so in substance in chapter 11 you talked about the necessity of vigilance and courage to guard the spiritual health of the church namely not being quick to leave uh, when there is spiritual dysfunction. Uh, so the question is, where's the line drawn between spiritual dysfunction that needs to be fought against and spiritual toxicity that should be fled from? And then a second kind of question to that is, how should a Christian lovingly call out brothers and sisters for choosing to leave when they should do the hard work of uprooting issues? Yeah. Yeah, these are all like three-hour conversation <laughs> I, I would say four beers but i don't know how old you guys are each so i won't add that but that's the only one <laughs> so okay so i do like that distinction between spiritual dysfunction and spiritual toxicity though i think the word toxicity is like the word we use when we don't want to deal with crap anymore mm-hmm. you know what i mean <laughs> so when something becomes spiritually toxic versus spiritually dysfunctional is of course that's that's the decision, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things. The first is I, I, you can start just with the doctrinal question of what kind of error is this? Like if you're talking about an error that makes something no longer a church, then I don't think that seeking to reform that church is the best idea, right? Um, so s- some prosperity gospel churches, I would say that would be true of. Not all of them, and I wouldn't say more than half of them. Because for a lot of them, the gospel, their their penchant for the prosperity gospel is a conf- is a confusion that should be repented of. Um, but there there are some things like that. There are some churches that just they have just really whacked doctrine that is very very mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, usually when people fall into this, it's some kind of workspace salvation or whatever. Um, but so so the first I was looking at that. The, the second is I think it's helpful. Um, whether or not to see if the people in that church perceive any of the problems. Hmm. Like how big is the perception gap? That's one of the things I do with when I decide whether or not to fire somebody. If I have somebody on my staff who is doing poorly and I <coughs> want them to do better, and I'm deciding, okay, will they do better or do I need to let this person go do something else? Yeah. One of the things I ask myself is, are they capable of seeing the problem? And I, I had, I've had a couple people over the years where the answer was no, <laughs> like they didn't see the problem. And it was, it truly was a, um, a conflict of perceptions. And when that's the case, it's very difficult without like some major soul searching on some people. Because if you, if you truly have a conflict of visions and there is a true perception gap, you can't really even have a conversation because you're not even talking about the same thing. The thing in your mind and the thing in their mind is just so they're just completely different. The only time when there's a perception gap where I hang in there is with a married couple. That's it. Other than that, if there's a major perception gap, I'm just like, look, you might be able to fix this, but I can't fix this. So the second is I would look for that. The third thing is I would just say is 
you should have you should already work out before that to root out all of your consumerism in relationship to the church in as soul-searching a way as you possibly can. Because I, I think for a lot of people, when they leave, it really is about the fact that they just don't want to have to put up with it. I don't want to put up with this stuff. I'm going to go someplace where the religious goods and services are better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I think that is its own toxicity. Like there are places where, like I've sat down with Nicole, who's our worship director, if you don't go to High Point, And I'm just like, I don't want it slicker. There's a level of quality that I think is bad. Mm-hmm. Like overproduced, mm-hmm. you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's just too yeah. easy to digest. Mm-hmm. It just it goes down too smooth, right? And it because the thing here's the thing, especially in, especially in Madison, because twenty percent of my my people are going to move this year. Mm-hmm. You think I want to keep getting emails? We just can't find a church like High Point. High Point's just so fantastic, and now we moved to Tulsa. We just can't possibly find a church, you know, or like Green Bay, right? Like, what happens if you if like Madison is a great church and somebody moves to like Fond du Lac? Mm. Well, mm-hmm. if they think the church is like my humor or like whatever, then they're going to go there and be like, we can't find a church. If they think that the church is a place where people who believe in Jesus Christ come together to find a way to walk in him together in such a way as that increases the glory of God in their region, then they'll find lots of them. Yeah. So you're saying like um, the the lack of overproduction is an effort to allow people to have a right perception of what the church truly is so that they don't just leave whenever they feel like it. Yeah. It's part of my campaign against, well, it's, it's also like when, if if things are too produced, people think that they're receiving, they're, they're like, they're like, they're a, uh, they don't feel like they're a participant. They're not a proprietor. Um, Chris Mm -hmm. Dolson says this. He's like, I want my staff members to walk down the hall I don't care what their job is. If, if there's a piece of paper on the floor, I want them to pick it up because this is their store, so to speak. Mm. You know what I mean? Like this is their thing. Um, G- Jesus talked about the difference between a hired hand and a shepherd, right? A shepherd will lay his life down for the sheep. A hired hand runs away, right? And mm. you can say, well, I'm the, sh- I'm, I, I, in this metaphor, I'm the sheep though at my church. Well, n- sort of, but sort of not. In mm. another way, you are, you stand in a relationship to Christ's church as a lover, not just as the loved. And the question is, what will you do for her? And what won't you do for her? In that sense, everyone's a pastor. In that sense, everyone's a shepherd. And the question is, do, one of the questions I ask myself is, do I, I mean, ultimately, when I ask the question, do I stay in Madison or do I move to Colorado and get acres and have horses? Or do I stay here and get judged by my neighbors and pastor this church, Right. <laughs> The, 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 the controlling question is, do I have a responsibility as a pastor, as a shepherd to this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true for all of us. Like the, one of the reasons why as a college student, I didn't leave the church was because I believed in Jesus. And in reading the Bible, I realized that he wasn't just interested in the universal church, but in the local church. I didn't realize yet that there was no such thing as the universal church without the local church. And that the interrelationship of those, those concepts was much closer than I even dreamed. But I realized that the local church had to, had, had to matter if, I, if one mattered to me, it was only hypocrisy if the other didn't matter. So that meant the local church was my problem. And so I either had to make it better or accept it as it was, right? Same thing like after I was married to Alexi for a year and we hated each other's guts. Well, we were married and she's my wife. So mm-hmm. I don't get to divorce her. So I can either live with it the way it is or I can try to make it better, right? 
And when you've only been married for a year, there's a lot of, a lot of motivation to try to make it better, you know, if you've only got one option. And so I think that for the local church, when you realize that it is Christ's passion, it is the universal church as the only way you can ever touch it, right? Then the question is, what are you willing to do and what are you called to do, right? And it's going to be something helpful, right? So, but at the end of the day, I, I do think this, this becomes a relative question. So there's this old quote by Tim Keller where he'd say, he, he was like, the city's, the city's where you need to serve Jesus. He'd be like, he's like, we always tell people, if you plan on staying in your city one year, stay two years. If you plan to stay three, stay six, five, stay 10, right? In some ways, I think that's a good attitude for dealing with church troubles. Hmm. Like, deal with it longer than you think you should have to. Hmm. And then consider maybe it's time to do something else. Because the, the, you, you'll grow more in godliness in the conflict of trying to make your church better than going to a better church. If hmm. you respond to those conflicts in faith. So if your faith is so weak that you can't actually stand up in the difficulties in that church. And so it's function on you is that it's toxicity. That is, it's killing you. Because remember, toxicity in some ways is an objective. Toxicity on some level is whether or not you're strong enough to deal with it or whether it be, it's a poison mm. to you and it's killing you. Mm. So there's for some people who just, they can't take it. And so they just have to go. And there's other people that just like, they're like, you know, what? I'm gonna learn how to handle this stuff. And they put on their big boy pants, so to speak, or their big girl blouse. And they just like, <laughs> they just like, look, this is unacceptable. Or they're like, okay, I think we could do this better or whatever. Does that make sense? I think that's especially mm -hmm. true if you're like under 30, because <laughs> usually you're only half right about what should change and about how bad things are, and about how okay. much you know. And so when you push, if you do it humbly, and you try to go directly to the people, they will push back on you. And they'll be right about some things. And that interplay actually will help cause you to grow. And the, the other thing too, is if you go, if you become part of like slick church, or like the church where everything's great, if it's great, because everybody works, and everybody's doing stuff, that is very transferable. But if you think going to a better church is going to a slicker church, so that you actually do less, mm. that actually can be really bad for your spiritual growth. So I think sometimes going mm. to a dysfunctional church can be better for your spiritual growth if it's received with faith. Mm. Anyway, so like there's a lot of dynamics here, like what kind of dysfunction in what sort of way and how strong are you and how long have you been hanging with this? And yeah. Yeah. And are there any other church? Like some people go, you'll go to, you might live in a small town. There's only three churches and the church you're in is the best one and you're going to church. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That actually kind of goes into Ariel's question because all of us are, well, some of, I'm graduating and we're, or soon to be graduated. Ariel's graduating. And so Ariel's kind of like, how do we, <laughs> <laughs> so Ariel, your question is like, how do we find a church after college kind of, or how would you phrase it? Yeah. And I think just like understanding what kind of discernment like you need in order to figure out what church is right for you. Obviously like not like no church is going to do things perfectly and kind of like you're talking about is like what level of dysfunction am I willing to engage in? And also going one step further, like I think we see a lot in the Western church, like some that are so focused on just evangelism and like service to unbelievers 
versus like increased personal growth for more mature believers that are like mm-hmm. actively engaging in that like method of discipleship. And so I'm just like, right. what is the line of service there versus personal growth? You should just become Greek Orthodox is the answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So there's kind of two questions there. One is how to like, what are the general basics for how do I find a church when I go to a new place? The second is what are the issues related to being a seeker church versus a believer's church or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Um, okay. So first of all, I do not like the, the, like the outreach church, the seeker church and the like believer <laughs> growth right. What I call them is the bait and switch church. <laughs> and the like maybe discipleship focused church. So, so I pastored at a bait and switch church in Florida. Lynn Haven Methodist mm-hmm. was a classic bait and switch church. It was all like good feelings and nice sermons on Sunday morning. Yeah. And then like, there were all these other ways we tried to get people to go deeper. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody who's, um, I think he, I think, I think his brother's on staff at Joel Olstein's church. I don't even remember the name of it. It looks like Whoa. something cool. <laughs> anyway and he was like he was like oh dude he's like you think that church is like a light blah 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 he's like but listen that's just sunday morning everything else small groups and like he's like joel olstein's mom preaches midweek and she is like bible woman crazy right and so like the idea is is that that church is like it's a total bait and switch church you come in with the psychological good feelings god's gonna give you your best life now just believe in him and then it's like well believing in him means you have to come to jesus and well, coming to Jesus means that you become his disciple. And well, becoming his disciple means that, right? Okay, yeah. I'm just going to tell you, I did that for seven years. I abhor that, that means. I, I hate. I just, and I'm not saying I hate those people or I hate those churches. I just don't want to yeah. do it. Right? There's some jobs other people like, and I don't want to do, and that's one of them. Because I, there's, people don't respond well when you change the rules on them. Mm-hmm. And so my view has always, and then secondly, I'd say this, the believers focused churches are often not producing better believers. They're just producing more educated legalists. Hmm. So a lot of times like you'll go to churches like that and everybody can flip right to Ephesians. Right. But they all let unwholesome talk come out of their mouths. Mm-hmm. So that's in Ephesians. Do that. So, right. So it's like, <laughs> Like people spit like if you there's this in um there's a reader about the early church about how I think it's plenty of the younger like found these two women who were deaconesses in one of the early churches in the second century and tortured them to find out what was done at these secret Christian services and they were like we sing without instruments and we take the Lord's supper and then we like tell each other not to sin (laughs) 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 that's it man. (laughs) like and but a big part of it was they weren't like oh let's do another study in romans they were like okay these things are sins we're gonna agree to not do them because we follow jesus and that like that was church right you worshiped god you took communion you you like we're like we're not gonna sin we're gonna serve god and follow him see you know notice you don't even need a pastor for that yeah and so a lot of the believers churches that we talk about today are really Bible study churches Hmm. and Bible study does not equate to Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? Or spiritual vibrancy. It can be a wonderful and effective means to Christian vibrancy because one is, is like interacting with the word of God written. 
right? And God, the spirit really likes to work with that. And so it can be wonderful, but it can also be, you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees at one point, like you literally memorize the scriptures because you think it's in them that you have life, but they speak about me and you refuse to come to me and have life. Hmm. And listen, people read that in their Bible says they go, Ooh, those Pharisees. And it, it literally is about that. Like it's about yes. us. And, and that is one of the greatest indictment of Bible believing evangelicals. And now, now everybody has their own little set of indictments, right? Yeah. But hmm. the indictment on people with a high view of scripture is often that we are, we are readers, but not hearers. We are knowers yeah. and not doers. And, and, like we, when we have organizations like Upper House that has like in, in their little sexy statement, you know, experiences of being, thinking and doing, right? And then like, there's only thinking and being happening. You know what I mean? And you're like, what the heck, you know? And so I think it's really important. So, so because I, that's what I believe. I believe that actually believers at all levels and non-Christians at all levels actually all need basically the same message. Because I believe we're all struggling with the flesh. The flesh has the same effect on all of us in slightly different ways, but it makes us more selfish, more self-involved, more tied to this world, right? More, more selfish ambition, vain conceit, less humility, more worldliness. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It's still the effect of the flesh. What's going to yeah. make me happy right now if I reach out and please myself, Right as opposed to making my boast in the future glory of God that I will participate in standing in present grace because of my justification. Right. And so what I'm preaching to a skeptic, what I'm preaching to a believing single mom, what I believe preaching to somebody who has three grandkids and has been following the Lord for 40 years is essentially the same gospel. Choose the mind of the spirit over the mind of the flesh. Believe that in God's demonstration of his grace to you in the death and resurrection of Christ, while you were ungodly, right. That God wants to transform you into something completely different. And that only by faith, by putting your trust in Christ, instead of what you want to do, how you want to manage things and walking his way, though, they may not make a lot of sense to you, right? You only learn the sense they make in the doing. And so you need to do them, believe and then follow same message for everybody. So in the sermon, what I can differentiate between different groups, like Willow Creek used to have this like different of like, not a believer, just barely a believer. Jesus is important to me. Jesus is Lord of my life. And what they would say for preachers is at some point in your sermon, refer explicitly to each of those four groups in relation to a sub application of how you would apply it to their particular state. Right. And for the, the non-believer, it's always believe in Jesus. <laughs> right. But in a slightly different way. But it's still the same message. Yeah. Believe in Jesus in relationship to this truth of this text within the broader concept of the gospel right now in a way the flesh doesn't want you to. And what I've found, therefore, at a place like High Point is we baptize people every year and people of lots of different places of faith will say, that sermon really helped me. That ministry really helped me. That worship thing really helped me, right? Now, we, we struggle with having a, the broadest possible span of types of people going through that. But one of the areas where we are not struggling demographically is different levels of faith in our church. Mm. Other than I would like to see us be more successful evangelistically. But I don't fault my model. I fault my practice for that not mm. being better. 
So relative to that, I would say looking for a church that preaches the gospel in a kind of full way like that mm-hmm. is really important. And then I would say you do want to look for doctrinal things like they should, I mean, they should affirm basically the Apostles' Creed. They should have a high view of scripture. Um, I, I think now, especially nowadays, I think the having high view of scripture is something you really got to look at closely. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people you, have a high view of scripture except for when they don't want to. How can you tell if they have a high view of scripture? Like, what would that look like? Over time, you learn to smell it. But in the short run, (laughs) in the short run, um, it is, you can feel it on people when they use scripture to explain away scripture. They hmm. say, well, you know, this can mean eight or nine different things when it, it, it doesn't mean eight or nine different things. It means one thing and it means the thing we least want it to mean, yeah. right? Like if, hmm. if scripture is constantly imposing on your life in psychological ways that are making you feel humiliated, right? Mm-hmm. You're listening to scripture. If you find the scriptures just always affirming what you already think, you do not have a high view of scripture. Mm. So part of it is if you believe a proper anthropology about what a human being is and what you're really given to, and then what voice would need to speak to you. And then you see the scriptures lovingly standing against you. Right. And then recognizing, embracing the scriptures lovingly standing against you. That's good evidence that people have a high view of scripture. Right. Mm. Um, And that's not to say that preaching isn't affirming and that there aren't many personally affirming messages in scripture. There are, and they're everywhere. And I don't, hardly any text where there isn't something that could be taken in a personally affirming way. Um, but even people who are like, I a hundred percent believe every word of the Bible. And yet when they preach through a passage, right. For some reason, only the positive stuff makes their outline or yeah. less often, but still real. Only the negative stuff makes their outline or they only like preaching uh-huh. epistles or they don't like, mm. like you can kind of tell. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our fourth question comes from the one and only Jack Anderson. So, uh, Jack, I'll hand it off to you. Yeah. Um, kind of switching gears here. Where would you place feelings in your gauge for faith? Like you don't want to depend on it for your feeling of intimacy because it's a roller coaster that's swayed by lies. But if I feel like indifferent towards God or something feels off with that, shouldn't we expect to feel joy? And like, if we really knew the gospel, wouldn't we experience that happiness on a more regular basis than we currently do? Yeah. So Becca asked me to do a 32 hour class on this next semester. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, dude, this is that's a really big, big question. I, I do appreciate the fact, though, that you're good enough to ask your own question because apparently Ariel wasn't allowed to ask her own question. I think she's the only person who didn't get to ask her own question so far. But um, okay, so there's there's so 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 much to say about that. So the first is yes, if you could strip away every effect of the curse, and you had a pre-sin or glorified human being of which there was no mediating effects between that human being and the glory of God. They would be joyful all the time. Yes. And that is the picture we have of heaven is that people are worshiping all the time. And 
whether or not we're literally going to be worshiping every second, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that revelation proves that anywhere, but worship is the expression of internal joy. Right. And so the idea is, is that therefore, if we do not feel joy, one explanation could be that we don't do, we don't understand or believe the gospel. Yes. Hmm. Or there could be other mediating or dampening factors. Right. So for, for, for example, you can't see the spiritual world. And so you've, there's, there are limitations in the way that you directly experience it. And so it decreases your sensation of it, which decreases your sensibility to it. Right. And that, that dampens your affections because you don't, you can't plug directly in. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. Similarly, you may have misunderstandings about the gospel that you don't even realize are there. So you really, really do believe in Jesus and you really, really do believe in the gospel, but because of assumptions you don't even know you have or inhibitions that you don't recognize are present or whatever, those things can inhibit you. For example, uh, I think it was Lyman Beecher, the 1800s American Southern preacher whose daughter wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin or niece. I can't remember now. Anyway, he, he said one time in a, um, in a narrative of his preaching, he said, I was preaching today and I saw like John Anderson, right? Sitting in the second row and I could, I could, and he said, I, I could see in his faith that, that something had his face, sorry, not faith, that something had stopped up his wheels. Meaning like if you're pushing like a wheelbarrow and somebody puts like a piece of wood under the wheel, it stops it like very annoyingly. And you're like, if you, and so you might say, well, what's wrong with the wheel? And the answer is there's nothing wrong with the wheel. There's just something stopping up the wheel, but there's an inhibitor. And oftentimes in faith and in feelings, um, one of the reasons why feelings don't flow well is not because the feelings aren't there, but because there are inhibiting effects that keep people from feeling. Like, for example, psychologically, they haven't developed their feelings. Because hmm. you're still feeling out of your faculties for feeling. If you have things from like growing up or whatever that have greatly inhibited your capacity to feel, and then you come to Jesus yeah, I think there are moments where the Holy Spirit might like break the floodgates open a little bit and you feel something really powerful. But the Spirit's ultimate goal is to actually heal your yourself. And so where he's going to eventually take you is back to the things that are inhibiting your capacity to feel as a complete human being. And if he just like magically allows you to feel beyond that all the time, you're never going to deal with anything because nobody wants to deal with anything that's painful. Yeah. So what's more likely is you're going to have, if we have problems with our feelings, which all of us do, that God will draw you at certain moments, either through his providential actions or his display of himself in the demonstration of Christ or in the, or in the shedding abroad of the, his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Something that allows us to have a momentary experience of something of the glory of God. Leading us to recognize that we should be more sensible of this, something. And then leading us to journey with God to figure out how that happens. And it's going to be various things. Sometimes it's, it's knowing the gospel better. Sometimes it's realizing why you don't really feel much of anything, which can be, can be related to wounds. Mm -hmm. Once you start getting why don't feelings flow, the decision tree gets very quickly split and split and split and split and split. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways that's, that's, I want to say 40% of the counseling I do is with people under 30 who can't feel anything. Huh. They're like, why am I so emotionally dead? And wow. saying it's because you look at so much porn and play so many video games. 
or because you don't, you're trying to feel fulfilled through social media and you can't work it. That's still really just a symptom. Like those mm-hmm. things are all coping mechanisms for the lives we're not living. Right. And we live lives where we're terror, we're terrorized and we don't act bravely. And we know that we're cowards deep in our hearts, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves. We, um, we don't like our work. We don't think we're really accomplishing anything or that it matters. We, um, I mean, I could go through like 50 things, like why we don't like our lives. We don't think our existence means anything. We will, right. And, um, and even people who like try to do stuff, like sometimes people do like really outlandish things. And it's partly because they're trying to find something that will make them feel alive. You know, like when I sit down with people, like I'll take use Lindsay as, as an example here. Like when I sit down with people like Lindsay, who are like, she's, I'm going to go to Africa and serve Jesus. Like one of the things I do when I sit down with people like that, is I say, tell me about that. Because I want to discern whether it's an act of humility in response to the gospel of laying one's life down or whether it's a desperate grasping at something that's meaningful in a world where nothing means anything. Wow. Mm. Right. Because, and, and if it's the latter, that's a, tra- that's a train wreck waiting to happen. Right. So, yeah. So I guess one is, Recognize that the, the emotional life is a powerful part of you that needs to be cultivated. That for many of us, especially the younger we are right now in America, because, because one of the things that creates stable emotional lives is stable families. Mm. Stable, non-abusive families that have at least one pretty nurturing parent, right? Mm. As family structure breaks down, the capacity for human beings in their younger years to, to produce relatively healthy emotion is greatly diminished because young children create defense mechanisms to survive that don't allow them to express and feel and express and feel, which is Mm -hmm. how human relationship is supposed to work. Right. And so what you get is adolescents and then young adults who like have no idea how to feel. Right. And so there's a lot of woundedness and that woundedness is not just like I was, I, I counseled a young woman a couple of weeks ago who like literally was molested by her older brother and her told her dad and her dad did nothing. Okay. She's got some feelings issues, that girl. Okay. But one of the things to also recognize is repeated minor traumas will have not, will, will not always destroy your capacity to live in quote normal life, like be a productive citizen, but they can shut down your emotions really powerfully and you won't realize that you were traumatized with these multiple micro traumas. And so you'll be like dead flat emotionally. And you'll just think, well, I'm just kind of an analytic person. And I just, you know, I'm just kind of, mm. this is how it is. And, but there's no life inside of you. And you kind of feel it. And you're like, I, I don't know why I just kind of feel gray all the time. And it's, it's because you've been wounded and you don't really even know it. And so you haven't pursued healing and, Nothing's going on in, but, but what, what happens is, is that your intuitive mind starts to rebel after a while and people start getting like physiological issues or like they, t- or, or you'll get, you'll get a lot of anxiety too. Cause if you don't know what to do with emotions, emotions are still swirling around inside of you and you don't really know what to do. And what you'll, what you'll get is you'll get, you'll get depression. You'll get a lot more depression and anxiety is what you'll get. So, so when you, when you, it's not just as simple as, should I feel more or what should I feel? Or what happens is, is that when you come to God, God wants to, he- to heal you or develop you or transform you in every way. 
And some of that is going to be to push you forward into something courageously. Sometimes it's going to be to change your mind from one thing to another. Sometimes it's going to be to take you backward to wounds and hurts and to take you through a process of healing. And you just kind of have to wander with God. Hmm. Be ready for it to hurt. Yeah. How would, we only have like about three minutes left. How would one, because I think I see that in myself a little bit, like how would one enter into that process of like, I mean, is the answer, everyone needs to go to counseling, you know, like how does someone actually enter that process of sorting out these wounds and how do I attempt the process of becoming emotionally healthy? In three minutes. In three minutes. <laughs> just, uh, just some quick Becoming unrepressed. Yeah. Minute. On the Engage and Equip yeah, podcast, there's yeah. an episode called Becoming Unrepressed. Oh. And it, it intentionally focuses on that. So, um, what, so, yeah. And one of the things I do is I go over, I think, at seven to 10 symptoms Okay. Of emotional repression that's that's rooted in some kind of wound usually. And so the first step is to identify as soon as possible in your life. Mm. And then try to figure out, okay, I, this is here. Why is it here? And it's once you kind of recognize it's there and you begin that process, it's actually not as hard as you think. Huh. Um, most, I, I don't know if you know this, but most people who go to counseling. Um, so, okay. So, so the people who get better in counseling, are the people who work at it when they're not in counseling. That's really what it comes down to. Huh. The people who come into counseling and they expect the counselor to fix them. They would never say that, but that's what they really think. Right. Yeah. Or to tell them that they're right, their spouses are whatever. Right. You could, those people can be counseling for 10 years. You're never going to get anywhere. The people who do 10 times as much work for every one hour you spend with them, those people get better. It, it's, it's amazing how in psychological work, you wouldn't think this, but transformation is a, is closely related to perspiration. Hmm. The, like taking the time to work through, and sometimes for some, especially for guys, but especially more analytic people, working through tools to do this. So like um, the self-authoring program, we've had some really good success with 20-something guys, especially at High Point, but women too. Um, almost everybody who does that does 15 to 20% better their next semester in college. That's the, the analytics on that. Apparently they've done it with thousands of university students and it just, huh. and it's just a process where you like go through your past, you sort through it, you look at your, at like your vices and your virtues of the present and you kind of sort through it and you look at what you want to be and you kind of sort through it. But because it's a deliberate process where you consider these things carefully, it just changed. It's just different. Some people, if they, if you know how to be guided, self-guided through some of this stuff, just like praying toward it, journaling toward it, works yeah. there was one girl who's just like i don't feel anything all i feel is hate i hate my parents i hate my life i hate my school i hate everybody i was like okay darling here's what i want you to do but she, she was very shut down i said here's what you need to do every time you feel a feeling no matter what feeling it is i want you to stop and embrace it just mm -hmm. imagine that you're setting a table and you invite it to sit down at the table you don't have to do what it says but you're going to feel it. You're going to listen to it. You're going to welcome it. And you're going to let it talk. You're not going to sign any papers. Right. And she said like, as a lifeguard, she would like, she would like go cry in the, like the lifeguard safety equipment room sometime. But then like, you'd be surprised how much you can cry in three minutes. Like it doesn't take an hour and a half to like embrace an emotion. Sometimes it usually takes about 20 seconds. This is huh. what I'm feeling. This is why I'm feeling. I'm feel I said, I'm like, yes, I'm feeling anxious. 
okay, I'm feeling, first of all, A, I'm feeling anxious. This is anxiety. It's rooted in fear. I'm afraid of something. What am I afraid of? And then you kind of like open your mind. So you, you, what you do is you have to let, you have to, because part of the issue here, is, okay, are we out of time because you're out of time or because I'm out of time? Because you're out of time. Okay. That's kind of how I think. Okay, so let's <laughs> stay with this for a minute. Okay. Um, okay. Carl Jung was not a Christian as far as I could tell. He was very religious, <laughs> but not a Christian as far as I could tell. What he said was the West produces a lot of what he called excessively conscious people. Hmm. So, so one of the things smart people do is they control the problems of their life but with their minds. They think it through. They figure out what to do. Through the fastidiousness of their intellect, they try to control the things they can't control and the things that are harming them. The, the problem with that is, is that the, a lot of our problems are rooted in our negative emotions, right? And so hmm. what do you do with your fastidious mind if your problem is a negative emotion? You shut it down somehow right there's there's four or five classic mechanisms of repression and not all of it is denial like people think well that's denial that's repression well intellectualization is probably the most common form of denial in the 10 or 12 city blocks where you work hmm. right i can't tell you how many young people i hear say this such and such matter happened to me it doesn't matter hmm. you just brought it up because it does matter to you so don't say it doesn't, right? Some of you know this from a recent sermon. I actually said this, right? So like mm. there are ways in which that happens and you've got to be like, okay, you've got to, you've got to like say, wait, no, it does matter. I, I'm thinking about this because it matters to me. Why does it matter so much? Why are you daydreaming about it? Why are you yelling at somebody in the shower as though you were arguing with them about it? Why did you try to pray for something, but then you ended up like imaginarily telling somebody off or like, why did you buy something that you don't need right then? Or like there's... Like there's all kinds of ways in which the symptoms of our hurts and, and our avoidances and stuff are just flowing out of us. When you recognize what they are and you open yourself to them, they will tell you what's wrong. Mm -hmm. If as excessively conscious people, we control that voice of our emotions with our conscious mind, we sit, we're basically just saying, shut up. I'm not listening to you. I'm in control here, right? And that's one of the reasons why um, Jung stayed with Freud's emphasis on dreams, but for different reasons. Mm. Jung believed that the value of dreams in the counseling relationship was that the, unco the unconscious mind, or what you might call your more primal mind or your more visceral self, or even just your intuitive mind, right? Your fast thinking versus your slow thinking, if you're familiar with that book. There's a part of you that just feels and thinks and responds really quickly. And you need that. Otherwise, you couldn't function as a human being because you make a million decisions a day you don't think about. And if you had to think about every one of them, you, you'd need the day to be 72 hours to even start doing anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so 95% of your decisions are made immediately with your intuitive mind. But your intuitive mind is also the root of your feelings and your reactions and you, therefore your fears and a lot of your negative emotions. Because that intuitive mind recognizes what could go wrong and avoids it constantly, right? And so if you don't let that talk, it gets angry, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. So therefore, oftentimes dreams are one of the ways to know how you're repressed. So when I, when I was younger, I, even when I felt like I was a pretty confident person, I was constantly having insecurity dreams of one kind or another, hmm. like all my teeth would break, right? I've well, had that dream actually. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Most, a lot of people have had that dream, right? Because here's the thing, your teeth are necessary, right? They are, um, 
they're like important and yet there's a there's a brittleness to them and if they're broken you're screwed like there's no fix to that you're t- you're just you're kind of ruined it away right and so a lot of people have had that kind of dream right um when i would fire a gun in a dream the bullet would like fall out the end of the gun it just wouldn't do what it needed to do mm. it, i could fly sometimes but not others Right. And it was like somehow rooted in confidence or there's, there's a thousand different insecurity dreams. Right. And I would be having these insecurity dreams, even when I felt like I was a pretty conscious person, a pretty, pretty confident person. Right. What does that mean? It means I'm insecure. That's what it means. Hmm. It does no good for me to be like, well, but yeah, in my conscious mind, I'm very confident. Well, no, in my conscious mind, I can discipline myself to act confidently so that I'm not prey to everybody around me. But that doesn't mean in my soul, in my heart, and who I am, and the united nature of myself. And I think, I think if you use Jungian theology related to Christian sanctification, the goal here is to bring the two together. To bring the two together. Yeah. So that the intuitive mind isn't dominated by the flesh. And the conscious mind isn't dominated by pride. But as the two are sanctified, they function together better and better and better and better. I think as that happens, the ability to think thoughts and feel feelings simultaneously increases dramatically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that yeah. you, because the goal is not just to feel feelings. The goal is to feel the appropriate feelings hmm. at the appropriate times in the appropriate proportion. And that has to be informed by your conscious thinking, which does yeah. your moral reasoning. But then the emotional reaction comes out of your conscience and other parts of your more, 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 um, less conscious self, but that's still part of your thinking, right? Um, you, you guys are familiar with the Myers-Briggs, the like thinking feeling dichotomy. Yeah. That came right out of Jung in his book, um, uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, where he said, feeling is a kind of thinking. Mm. What he meant was that the F's, the feelers in MBTI are people who think more in close relationship to their intuitive mind. So they're thinking, but they know what they think just like this. And they can't tell you the reasoning process all the time. But Jung was like, it's just, it's still coming from your brain. It's still part of who you are. It's still a function of your cognition. It's just a very different kind than cognitive, constructive, analytical thinking. That really helped me with feelers because I just thought they were stupid people who just felt. (laughs) Because, but I recognize, no, that is a kind of thinking. And I flip back and forth between them constantly, right? So I think that if you begin to work on those things feeling-wise, what it ends up producing in the long run in relationship to the progression of sanctification as the spirit works both in persuading your mind through illumination and working in your heart through emotional healing and release of the love of God shed abroad in your heart produces a human being where the whole of you is working together to experience life and to respond to life and where the life of the mind and the life of the heart are firing up together and where both are growing in their intensity because part of your passion will lead you to think harder and want to learn more. One of the reasons why people think I'm like well-read or I think whatever to the extent to which they respect my, my mental capacity, it was driven by a strong passion to know which was driven by my feelings in my heart of it that focused particularly on inquisitiveness. Even when I couldn't feel a lot of other things I should be feeling, the longing to know was a true passion. And that passion mm-hmm. led to my growth in cognition, right? The two have always been related. There's always been the story in me of heart and mind, heart and mind, heart and mind. 
And in that process of sanctification, working to not be excessively cognitive, becoming more unrepressed, creates a more unified and whole human being. Mm. But it takes a holistic view of sanctification that's really difficult sometimes. Yeah. But if you, but, and it may take you three decades to get it all sorted out, but a lot of people don't even start till they're in their forties. I mean, if you start now, you've got more plasticity in your tr- capacity to change because you're just not as old and you can make a lot more progress. You can make more progress from 23 to 27 than I can from 36 to 45. Mm. Mm. And you'll save yourself a lot of heartache and you'll have a lot more fun. <laughs> Cool. Because, um, because that level of emotion isn't just in your relationship with God. It, it flows over in rejoicing over your kids and mm-hmm. loving your spouse and mm. crying with somebody in your small group when they tell you something heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. Like one of the marks that I felt like I was starting to make some progress with this is when I started to cry when certain people would tell me about terrible things that happened in their lives. I mean, Jean actually was with me one night where I was going to sit with a couple and they were going to take their baby off life support. And I was going to watch their baby die with them. And I said, I was with Jean and Matt. And I said, my fear is, is that I'll watch their child die in front of them. And I won't cry with them. Because why would I cry? It's not my kid. Right. And so they, they literally prayed for me before I went and asked God to help me find a way to connect with them personally to, and to walk as a shepherd in what they were doing so that it affected me emotionally, not just cognitively. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it happened. Like I really, I was able to enter into them emotionally and not feel what they felt, but feel enough of what they felt to mourn with them in a way that they could receive more deeply than if I sat there dry eyed. Right. I've yeah. had that in a few counseling sessions too, where some, uh, somebody tells me about the horrible things that happened to them and they, they've seen me on the stage and they don't imagine me as somebody who's going to cry in their first counseling session. with me. And when that happens, they're like, wow. Hmm. And it ministers to them in a way. And I should be able to do everybody. Like, I, that's just emotion, right? It's taken me 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway. So, yeah. So, it's such a, Jack, it's that's such a deep well. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. But you well, might like that podcast, Becoming Unrepressed, if you haven't heard it yet. Yeah. I'm actually going to look into that. Well. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Gene. It's episode 166 for people who are listening. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so those are our questions. Um, I noticed that none of them you. are about the book, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully that means it was really clear. That's great. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was a perfect book. There were no questions on the book. <laughs> Crystal clear. So. Good. Well, hey, you guys, listen, High Point loves the work of upper house we any witness to the uw campus is necessary and i know you guys are working really hard to make it an effective one in a in a holistic one and that's no easy task and um i know you guys got all kinds of classes you're taking and fiancés you're planning weddings with and stuff and so yeah. awesome thank you thanks yeah. for talking thank with you. us Appreciate thank it. you so much yeah, yeah, yeah. guys yeah. all right bye-bye Thanks for 
listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.